The Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, thanks for being here. Happy week. Uh, happy Saturday. Happy Father's Day weekend as well. Uh, coming up today, got a bunch of emails last week or so. Uh, people asking for suggestions on graduation gifts, uh, some books, some books that would make good graduating gift, graduation gifts, either high school or going off to college or college grad going off into the real world. And I guess this would double as good Father's Day gifts. If you don't have one yet, uh, I, I got two book suggestions that I want to give coming up. You could run to Barnes and Noble and, and pick it up by tomorrow. So we'll talk about that coming up. Also, I've ignored the craziness at Evergreen State College. Have you have you been following this the last couple of weeks? I've ignored it for reasons I'll explain later. But it is the craziest university crazy story I've ever heard. And I, I do want to take a minute and make sure you're all up to speed on this. And, and we'll give you that rundown. Uh, what else we got? Oh, coming up in this hour, I want to talk about Shakespeare in the Park. I haven't seen it because I'm in San Diego, not in... New York City. But based on what we know about it, it makes me wonder if the people who are in the play ever read the original play. Right? It's supposed to be a modern take on Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. But it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to make Trump the role of Caesar. And anyone who would make Trump the role of Caesar I think that makes me think that you you don't you, you haven't read the play, <laughs> so it's just pretty odd. So we'll talk about that coming up in, in just a few minutes. But first, I want to start here. Uh, Tuesday or Wednesday was the 30th anniversary of Ronald Reagan's "Tear Down This Wall" speech. Do you know how that speech came about? Reagan didn't write it. It was written by a then 30 year old. Dartmouth and Oxford graduate. His name's Peter Robinson. He was the junior member of Reagan's speechwriting team. Peter Robinson. Now, a couple decades after that speech, Peter was talking to his daughter. His daughter was a high school senior at the time. And he thought he'd do a little experiment. And he quizzed her on major wars. Again, she's a high school senior. 
So he said, what about the Revolutionary War? And she's like, oh, pff, no problem. That's when we won our independence from the British. Okay, the Civil War. Ah, yeah, come on. Dad, Lincoln freed the slaves, reunited the country. World War One. Uh, Archduke Ferdinand, uh, there was an assassination, but uh, the Americans went over there and democracy won. World War II, easy. We beat Hitler and Japan. Great job, honey. Uh, what about the Cold War? He said she was very uncertain, very vague. They're not taught about the Cold War in American high schools. They don't know how Vietnam fit into it or Korea. They don't even know who Gorbachev was. And this is the, this, the daughter, uh, the 17, 18-year-old daughter of the guy who wrote the tear down this wall speech. And, and she doesn't even know about the Cold War. This, by the way, is all by design. Our educators can't talk about the Cold War because in the Cold War, we fought against communism. And communism, well, it may not have worked in practice, but they say it's good in theory. So college kids have no, or high schoolers have no proper background. They don't, they don't understand the context of tear, the tear down this wall speech. And if you don't know the context, then it sounds like this is an okay line. It's not, it's, there's, there's no gravity. There's no severity. There's no importance to it if you don't know the background. So here's how it worked. You got Reagan's speechwriter. Uh, well, let me quote from a political article about him. Writing speeches for Reagan, Robinson says, wasn't especially difficult. Reagan had penned most of his own speeches before becoming president, and he'd employed con- conversational language, the diction of ordinary Americans. When you wrote... Peter Robinson said, when you wrote, you could hear those wonderful pipes of his. And you knew whether something was right for him or not. On top of the fact that by the time he got to the office, you had two decades of Reagan's writings and recordings on every conceivable issue. You knew where he stood. About the Berlin speech, what instructions were given? None, Robinson said. He was simply thrown into the deep end. My guidance from senior staff on the speech was... Audience, about 10,000. Length, 20 to 25 minutes. Subject, foreign policy. Period. It was up to me to figure out what Reagan ought to say beyond that. Imagine giving those instructions. Holy, where do you even begin? Where do you end? So here's how it went down. He and a fellow speechwriter, they flew to Berlin. And they met with... The, the ranking American diplomat about what Reagan should say. And the diplomat was full of things that Reagan shouldn't say. That's it. And the embassy was very clear that they did not want any, in his words, commie bashing. Or in their words, no commie bashing. So he was totally a loss of what to do. What to do, what to say, and the speech was coming up. So he and the other speechwriter, they went out to a dinner party among Berliners. And they're there standing, standing around talking. And a woman comes up to him. Now, I don't know if she knew who he was or 
if she was anyone special or I we have no idea. But with a great passion, she jumped in the conversation and said, if this man Gorbachev is serious about Glasnost and Perestroika, he can prove it by coming here and getting rid of this wall. There it is. Peter Robinson said, boom. I put that in my notebook. I knew immediately that I had something. Because I knew Reagan would have responded to that woman's message. I had Reagan in my head. He would have loved that. Simple, dignified, but very powerful. How amazing is it that one of the most famous lines in human history, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This line that completely changed history. Delivered by a president, written by a speechwriter, who was just at a gathering when a woman, in passing again, maybe not even knowing who Peter Robinson was, or that he was Reagan's speechwriter, or that she, in what she was about to say next, would have a direct line to the president, and therefore to all of human history. That she just said something off the cuff. Maybe even if you talked to her today, she'd be like, oh, I don't remember saying it. That off-chance encounter is where... We get Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. Isn't that amazing? What are the chances? Now, I want to play uh, that part here. I just want to play two minutes of this speech here. I want to play the build-up to it. Now, before he says, tear down this wall, he says something much less inspirational. Mr. Gorbachev, open up this gate which doesn't, doesn't quite have the same ring to it, right? Open up this gate versus tear down this wall. Isn't that amazing how those are so different? The reason he says open up this gate is because earlier in the speech, he references the Brandenburg Gate. He says pre- the, the president of uh, West Germany, the good side, uh, said the German question is open as long as the Brandenburg Gate is closed. And today I say, as long as the gate is closed, as long as this scar of a wall is permitted to stand, it is not the German question alone that remains open, but the question of freedom for all mankind. So that's why, so he, earlier he referenced the gate, and then that's why later he references the gate. He says, open up this gate. Uh, but that's not the line that does it. Sit back, enjoy uh, a little bit of Ronald Reagan 30 years ago this week. Yeah, do we have uh, 1536? We will have that when we get back. Oh, there's the tease. We got it? All right, let's do it here. And now, now the Soviets themselves may in a limited way be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Certain foreign news broadcasts are no longer being jammed. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state? Or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West or to strengthen the Soviet system without changing it. We welcome change and openness. 
for we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty, the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There it is. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Mike Slater. It's Slater for Slater. So if I may draw a parallel between that speech 30 years ago this week and what's going on right now, how Reagan and, and, and the Western world won the Cold War uh, versus what we're doing now with Islamic extremism. We're not winning now because we haven't defined the enemy. Back then, uh, it was clear. It was obvious. Now, now I think it's equally obvious today. Uh, and, and in very ways, in very many, in many ways, uh, Islamic extremism similar to the murderous regimes of of communism. There's differences, of course, but it's all within the um, under the umbrella of the same broken collectivist ideology. Different strains of the same disease. But keep in mind, it was one year ago this week as well when a terrorist killed 49 people in that nightclub in Orlando. And on the one year anniversary, the headline of the Orlando Sentinel said. Pulse gunman's motive. Plenty of theories, but few answers. (laughs) NBC. Orlando's Latino community remembers and rebuilds one year after shooting. Latino community? I mean, it was a gay club, but I guess it was Latin night, so they're, they're highlighting the Latino community? CBS services will mark one year since Pulse nightclub shooting cnn angels join vigil for 49 pulse victims this one's the worst washington post a year ago 49 people died at pulse nightclub 
Today, Orlando remembers. 49 people, they died. It could have been a pyrotechnic explosion. It could have been some rotten meat that they used to make meatball appetizers. They passed through, right? I mean, it could have been carbon monoxide poisoning, just, but they've died. 49 people died. The building collapsed. Just 49 people died. <laughs> Unbelievable. So Jim Tratcher, he, he wrote a headline, an appropriate headline, because you will see no headline like this on any newspaper in the entire world. But he wrote one year ago, Omar Mateen murdered 49 people at the Pulse nightclub in the name of Islam. Pulse gunman's motives. Plenty of theories, but few answers. Really? Again, I think that Washington Post headline's the worst. As opposed to some guy murdered 49 people. It's 49 people died. (laughs) I heard someone say, 49 people gave their lives. One year ago, 49 people gave their lives in an attack. It's like, what? As if they voluntarily sacrificed themselves. Nothing will change. The, the, the willful ignorance, and it's willful, the willful ignorance is staggering. And thank goodness that we did not do this 30 years ago during the Cold War. Reagan did not operate in this manner. Otherwise, it'd be Mr. Gorbachev. This wall's fine. Everything's good. What wall? I don't even see a wall. <coughs> now, those are just newspaper headlines. This is even more insidious. You'll remember Loretta Lynch, who was the uh, attorney general under Barack Obama. She released a partial transcript of the 911 call that Omar Mateen made from inside the nightclub, right? So he's inside the nightclub killing people. He calls 911. So I'm, I'm going to read from this transcript as released by Loretta Lynch, as released by the federal government, by the Department of Justice, just a couple of days after the terrorist attack. Mateen, I pledge allegiance to omitted. May God protect him. In Arabic, on behalf of omitted. Do you remember this happening? This is a year ago. And as soon as the Department of Justice released that, everyone with two brain cells looked at that and said, whoa, 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 whoa. What? Omitted? We all know what you're omitting. What are you doing? So what were they omitting? What he really said was, I pledge allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who is the leader of ISIS, who, by the way, yesterday, Russia announced that they think they killed and an airstrike, but he's the leader of ISIS. So I pledge allegiance to the leader of ISIS. May Allah protect him on behalf of the Islamic State. So they they omitted Baghdadi and Islamic State. But I think maybe even worse than that is they changed may Allah protect him to may God protect him and then in brackets in Arabic. So they translated Allah to God. Unbelievable. And they did that because we can't say Allah. You got to get Allah out of there. Put God in there. Amazing. (laughs) It's, uh, It's sad because 
listen, one, one speech can't change everything. It's not like Reagan gave a speech and then magically everything was better. There was obviously a lot of work behind the scenes. A lot of work for years prior. But that speech 30 years ago this week reflected the posture that leadership in this country had, which reflected the actions of identifying the enemy and standing up to it with truth, with the goal of we win, you lose. Because that's how you win. It's the only way to win is to identify the enemy. We have an enemy today. We refuse to identify it, which is why they continue to kill people. And we're going to continue to look the other way every single time, no matter where it happens, Manchester, London Bridge, down wherever you live, it doesn't matter. It's going to keep happening because heaven forbid anyone dare say that omitted is an omitted. And one day, if we don't stand up and speak the truth, then we'll all be omitted. So wake up, identify the enemy, which of course is omitted. And finally, we can all omit it. See how worthless that is? When you talk like that, when you communicate like that? That's what our federal government was doing. We'll see how that changes. Coming up next, we'll talk about Shakespeare in the Park and, and why I think the people in the play never read the actual play. Because if, if you know the play, it seems very odd that they would replace Caesar with Trump. We'll explain that next. Mike Slater, show the plays radio network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusader. So I'll, uh, I'll take the bait here and we'll talk about the Julius Caesar play at Shakespeare in the Park in New York City in Central Park. We'll talk about this. Uh, you, you, you're all up to speed, right? The controversy because Caesar in this reimagined modern version is played uh, or, or represented by Donald Trump and he gets stabbed, obviously, and all the obvious problems with you know, killing the sitting president every night. You would think that would be problematic. In our world of microaggressions, this seems to me to be an actual aggression. But alas. Um, here's the point I want to make. And I'll be honest, of course, I haven't seen the play. I live in San Diego, it plays in New York City. I haven't seen it. I've only seen on TV what you've seen, right? The scene where they stab Trump over and over again. I mean, and I, that's important because it's not just one dramatic stab and he's dead. It's a full-on attack scene. So haven't seen the play. But the fact that they replaced Caesar with Donald Trump makes me think that they haven't read the original play. And I really think this whole controversy, it's one of those scenarios, and this happens every, every so often, usually when there's something going on in the Middle East or Israel, Palestine, where everyone just pretends like they know what's going on, but no one knows what's going on, <laughs> right? The fact that we're talking about Shakespeare's Julius Caesar as if we've all read it, <laughs> as if, oh, yeah. Uh, of course I read that. It's like, uh, 
like we've all seen the movie Titanic or something. Like, oh yeah, Titanic. Yeah, sure. Now I've, I've definitely seen that. Yeah, yeah. We've all read Julius Shakespeare or we, we've all read uh, Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. Everyone's read that. Yeah, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe one percent of the population have ever read Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. Maybe one percent. The only time most people would read it would be in high school. And you read a Shakespeare play, and it's probably not going to be Julius Caesar. It's going to be something else. But even if it is Julius Caesar, who actually reads it in high school? And then other people who actually read it, how many people remember it? Come on. But everyone in this whole controversy is pretending like, oh, yeah, I read it five times a year. I can quote it from memory. No problem. Please. I want to play a scene uh, coming up later if we can. Maybe we'll do it in the next segment. Of... Uh, from from the play, it's performed by Damian Lewis. It's two minutes. It's really good. And uh, lest we all have flashbacks to our uh, ninth grade English class and fall asleep in the hundred and twenty seconds of audio that I want to play, uh, I want to explain quickly what's going on here. And as I'm saying this, I'm realizing, brother, that I never sent it to you. Uh, let me send it to you right now. All right, here we go. See if you can pull this up, my man. I'll get it ready here. Boom, sent. Um, So here's what's going on. Uh, You got Brutus and a handful of other conspirators. They stab and kill Caesar. He's the, 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 the top dog. Now this is when Caesar says, Et tu, Brute! You too, you too, Brutus, right? Like, what he's saying is, Oh, Even you, Brutus, my friend, even you were a part of this plan to kill me. Come on. And then Caesar says, then fall, Caesar, meaning, God, geez, even even my best friend conspires to kill me. If that's true, then what's the point of living? I might as well just die. So Brutus and these conspirators, they kill Caesar. Great victory for Rome. That's how they pitch it. They pitch it as this great victory for Rome. We've killed the tyrant. And Caesar, or excuse me, uh, Brutus gives this grand speech to the people of Rome. And the people of Rome love him. Right? We love Brutus. He killed the tyrant. Oh, Caesar, he was an awful man. Brutus, that's what Brutus says. He was, you people don't even know how bad he was. And Brutus says that he was ambitious. Very dangerous. And Brutus had to stop Caesar's ambition for the sake of the people of Rome. And the people of Rome think that that's just great. And they praise Brutus for a job well done. Are you with me so far? So the people love Brutus and hate the big bad now dead Caesar. Or in this case, Donald Trump. Then, at Caesar's funeral, Mark Antony gives a short speech. And that's what I want to play for you in a second. Do we have that ready? Is that is that good to go? I want I want to explain one thing before we play it, but do we have it? Um, cool. So this is where Mark Antony says uh, Caesar was my friend, and he says, you know, Brutus says that Caesar was ambitious, and that's why he had to kill him. But every time Caesar won a battle, he used that money to fill the public treasury. That's doesn't seem like something an ambitious person would do. And whenever the poor cried, Caesar wept with them. 
An ambitious person wouldn't have that much empathy. That seems seems odd. Oh, and, and remember the three times, thrice is the word he uses. Remember the three times that we presented him the crown to be king? And Caesar turned it down each and every time. Remember that? Yeah, that doesn't seem like an ambitious man. Huh. And that's when Mark Anthony says that men have lost their reason. So I want to play this here. Again, it's two minutes. As I mentioned, try not to have a flashback back to ninth grade and and fall asleep here. Stay with it. You can. Uh, He starts off, Mark Anthony does here in the funeral oration. He starts off speaking bad about Caesar and, and speaking really highly of Brutus, right? He calls Brutus honorable and noble. But then he gets sarcastic, right? He keeps calling Brutus honorable and noble, but he does it with a more sarcastic tone. All right, here it is. Enjoy. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honourable man, so are they all, all honourable men, come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure, he is an honourable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You all did love him once, not without cause. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? O judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar. And I must pause till it come back to me. The quality of mercy. Let me stop there. Uh, so that's when the people of Rome start to question what they heard from Brutus. Like, well, hold on. This Mark Anthony guy's making a pretty good point here. Brutus said Caesar was, was ambitious, had to be killed. And then Mark Anthony's saying, well, or he's reminding us that maybe he wasn't really ambitious at all. And then Mark Anthony takes the cover off of Caesar's body and they can see how the people see how brutally 
he was murdered. And then Mark Antony reads Caesar's will, which says that if he dies, he leaves each Roman citizen 75 drachmas, which today would be like $20,000. Imagine. So at this point, the people turn on Brutus and the conspirators because they remember how much they really loved Caesar. So I have no idea how they handle this in the New York City Central Park version. I have no clue. But if they leave this part out, so, so the, the murder of Caesar is act three of a five-act play. The play ends with the two conspirators, the two main conspirators, killing themselves. Brutus kills himself because of the shame of what he did. So, I don't know. <laughs> uh, if, if, the, if the people who made this new Trump version of Caesar, Julius Caesar, if they end the play with Trump dying, and then let's call it, call it a play there, and then, oh, look, he's dead. Or maybe, I, I don't know, if they were true to the play, then at the end, everyone who goes who probably hate Trump, anyway, they would leave the play thinking, huh, maybe Trump isn't so bad after all. Maybe, maybe he's not a tyrant. Maybe if we did kill him, we would regret it. Maybe we think he's evil and we think he's dangerous and we think he's ambitious, but maybe the people who conspire against Trump are those things too. Maybe they're even worse. And maybe Trump, like Caesar, is a man to actually be admired. I, I don't know. That's the, that's the point of the original play. I don't know how they handle it with Trump there. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. So check this out. Uh, Oxford in England. Because women are not getting as high of grades in the history department. Women will be allowed to take their tests home and take them at home. Now, I don't know if men will also be allowed to take them home or if men have to take them in the class and only women can take them home. I'm not sure. But either way... The, the, the premise behind it, right, is like women aren't getting as good of grades, so we're going to have take-home tests now. So the presumption here is that women have tiny brains. Unbelievable. So imagine if I, I don't have a daughter, but if I explain this to my daughter and she asks me, she says, Daddy, why do girls take their tests at home and boys take them at school? And I would say, well, honey, girls 
are stupider than boys. And there's a gender grade gap because girls are so stupid. So to try and close the gap, we let the stupid people take their tests from home where they can cheat. And that way, you girls can get higher grades and be successful. Otherwise, you wouldn't stand a chance. As I pat her on the head. Go on now. Go do your stupid girl things. What kind of what, like, it, what other message could they possibly send with that? Now, the thing is, this actually hurts women more, this idea, right? Because women aren't getting high grades, so we're going to do something to make women get higher grades than they otherwise would. This hurts women. Because right now, if a woman came to me and, and with a, a resume and she graduated from Oxford, that's pretty awesome. That's quite admirable. Ad, admirable. But if in a few years, I didn't go to Oxford, obviously, but if in a few years, uh, a girl, a woman, gave me her resume and it says she graduated from Oxford... Mm. or I'll put it like this. Let's say a man and a woman both graduated from Oxford. They took the same classes, got the same grades. You're obviously going to conclude that the man earned his degree and the girl got to cheat or at least got special accommodations. Not because she had a disability, but because she was a woman. So why would you possibly hire the woman? This hurts women in the long run. But of course this assumes that we think there are such things as boys and girls and men and women and genders at all. Because you have people who are truly making the claim. There's a video of a biology professor at the University of Toronto. A biology professor making the argument that there's no such thing as biological gender. Which is interesting. Because if there's no such thing as gender, then how can you make special accommodations for different genders? See how they want it both ways there? They want there to be a gender pay gap, but then they also want there to be no such thing as gender. One last point here. Making tests easier for women. Why do people want things to be easier for them? I don't understand that. Let's just take the basketball game, uh, the NBA finals last week. If LeBron James got hurt in game one and the Warriors won every game, they swept every game, that would be an empty victory. Because they'd win, but there'd be a giant asterisk and everyone would be like, oh, but LeBron wasn't playing. Great competitors want their competition to be at full strength so that they can say they slayed the mighty LeBron in this case. If I was a woman in Oxford, I'd say, make the test harder for me. I'll prove to you double time that I'm qualified to be here and I'll be the smartest person in this classroom. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Um, please check out our Facebook page and search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We hang out all week there. Just put up a video the other day. Um, if you could share that, if you enjoy it, that'd be awesome. All right, I want to talk about this this Evergreen State College controversy. Have you been following this? Uh, I have not, <laughs> just to be honest. We've talked a lot about crazy things going on in college campuses for a while. 
And honestly, when this one happened, I tried to get it. I tried to understand. And I couldn't. It was so far gone. I couldn't comprehend any of it. Like I really, I read statements from the kids at the college and I had no idea what they were talking about. And I didn't know who was mad at who. And what I, I just, I had nothing. So I just gave up, but I read something the other day and it, it, I finally, it makes sense now. And I think I can explain it clearly. And then something happened recently that is completely bonkers. I've never heard anything like it. And that's what I really want to share. But, but here's, let's get everyone up to speed. In the 70s, oh, this is a, a, a public school in Olympia, Washington, Evergreen State College. So in the 70s, students of color started a day of absence. And this is when the non-white students and faculty would skip school for the day in order to make a point, I don't, whatever. And they've been doing this every year since the 70s. This year, however they decided to kick it up a notch because students of color felt it was unsafe on campus because of Donald Trump's election. Even though I am certain that not a single professor or student at Evergreen state college voted for Donald Trump. And I would put my money that more of them voted for Jill Stein than even Hillary. Either way, they felt threatened. So instead of students of color, voluntarily skipping class for a day. The students of color decided it would be better to forcibly remove white people from campus for a day. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So instead of uh, black kids saying, we're not going to show up today. It's a day of absence. This year they said, oh no, we're going to show up on campus. We're just going to make sure no white people do too. That was the plan. Enter biology teacher Brett Weinstein, who is a progressive uh, and Jewish. And he wrote a letter to one of the organizers saying, basically, there is a big difference between voluntarily not showing up and forcibly removing people from campus. So for that email, he got mobbed by students calling him horrible things. The most hysterical that you've ever seen any college kids ever. Uh, this is, they're more hysterical than the Yale Halloween costume stuff. This is more hysterical than Milo going on campus. This is the most hysterical you've ever seen kids. Uh, it's, it's horrifying. It's, it's hard to watch. So just Google Brett Weinstein and mob and you'll see a bunch of videos about him. I, I skimmed through one of them and, and just right wherever I stopped in the middle, someone in the mob yelled, do you believe that students of color are targeted in the sciences? He's a biology teacher. And he says, what do you mean by targeted? And the person goes targeted by racism in the classroom. Institutional oppression. Oh, wow. All right. So here's where we are. Why do you bring this up? This is entirely the adult's fault. This is a state school. L let me just rattle off a few minor facts about Evergreen State College, and then we'll get to the humdinger of them all. Uh, first, the woman at the center of this 
controversy, uh, or, or I should say the, the person who Brett Weinstein sent the email to, her title is Director of First People's Multicultural Advising Services. Director of First People's Multicultural Advising Services. How is that a job? This school has a 98% acceptance rate. There are no grades, only narrative evaluations given by professors. Uh, these are actual science classes held at this state school. Uh, in the biology department, reproduction, gender, race, and power. Dancing molecules, dancing bodies. It's a biology class. Uh, physics, defending Mother Earth, science, energy, and native peoples. This is the math department, dimensions of inequality and options for change. So this is not a real school. I, I, don't, I really don't know how they have an accreditation. How can, this, how can this be a real place? At least the craziness at Yale and Berkeley. Like, those are actual universities. And I don't think the craziness there is everyone at these schools, Yale and Berkeley. This place, Evergreen State, this is just full-on loony bin. There's no even pretense of this being a real actual school. So the other day, students, if you want to call on that, crashed a meeting of administrators and held them hostage. And they told them that they could only leave once they agreed to their demands. Okay, this is how pathetic these adults are. The excuse me, the president of the school had to, in the middle of being held hostage, had to ask the students to go to the bathroom if he could go to the bathroom. He had to ask the student. He's the president of the school. He had to ask the students if he could go to the bathroom. He was escorted by members of the mob and then returned back to the room where he was held hostage again. He had to ask to go to the bathroom. At one point, the mob told him to stop committing microaggressions because he was talking too much with his hands. He was using his hands too much when he was talking and they said that was a microaggression. So for the rest of the time, he talked with his hands behind his back. Just why not just castrate yourself right there, man? What are you doing? But here's the best part. This is the, this is the full on bonkers is that that's not bad enough. The next day he gave a speech at some student event addressing each of the demands. I promise you what I'm going to read you right now is not a joke. I read this and I thought, no, there's no way. There's no way this is true. And I have audio of him actually saying it too, but <clears throat> I want to read it to you. Um, this is not a joke. This is the adult president of a state university. He gets up to the microphone and he says, I'm George Bridges. I use he, him pronouns. That's not even the part I'm like that. We're past that now, right? That's how in colleges, that's how you're supposed to introduce yourself. You're supposed to identify your name and then how you identify yourself, how you would like to be referred to as, by the way, this weekend or the other day, yesterday, Canada passed C-16, which is a bill that outlaws not using someone's preferred gender pronoun. So now it's against the law to call a man he 
if he prefers to go by she. It's against the law now in Canada. Okay. So anyway, I'm George Bridges. I use he, him pronouns. I begin our time together today by acknowledging the indigenous people of the Medicine Creek Treaty, whose land was stolen and on which this college stands. I would like to acknowledge the Squaxin people who are the traditional custodians of this land and pay respect to elders past and present of the Squaxin Island tribe. I extend that respect to other native people present. In response to Native Student Alliance requests, we commit to opening every event with this acknowledgement. Wow. These adults are way more pathetic than the children who attend this school. Holding his arms behind his back, stating his he, him, gender, pronoun, preference, acknowledging that white people stole the land that this university is now like asking permission to go to the bathroom. This is Lord of the flies insanity. Everyone involved here should be ashamed of themselves. Everyone should be ashamed of themselves. And it has to stop before we are all subjected to this. And before every time you want to say anything, you have to acknowledge some aggrievance by some victim group. Would you imagine if every time, like every TV show, every movie, every time you speak, every time there's a presentation, anytime ever, you have to give some acknowledgement as ordered by some group that got together and is holding you hot. Like, what? We just have to rattle off our people's past sins before we're allowed to say anything. Absolute insanity. And coming to a town near you. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater. Slater said, is one last thing about Evergreen State. Um, this is the, the president. We have heard, by the way, the president makes $300,000 a year. I was talking to my local producer about it. He's like, well, yeah. What does he care? He makes three hundred grand a year, plus I'm sure a pension and all the rest. It's a state school, right? Three hundred grand a year? I'll say whatever you want. Who else do you want me to apologize to as, on behalf of all white people before I get up and speak for three hundred grand? Anyway, he goes on. He says, we've heard from students very clearly that they experience racism on campus that interferes with their education. No way. No. If, if I was president of the school and some kids came up to me and said they experienced racism, I'd say, go, go back to work. Get, get, go read a book. How can there be racism at this ridiculous place? Name one actual racist thing that you've ever experienced at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. There's no way there's racism there. Like, this is what's so frustrating. I wish these kids just take a trip to India or places in Africa where they have still actual caste systems 
and then come back and tell me there's racism at Evergreen State College. There's a deeper issue here. The deeper issue is why are people so dramatic? I read an article in Entertainment Weekly the other day. I guess there was some TV conference in Austin, Texas the other day, and there was a panel called Trumped Up TV. And the writers there are just, oh, I can't, I can't go on. I don't, I don't know how to proceed. This is a writer of Lost. How can I possibly focus? Uh, Royal Pains producer says there's no cell phones allowed in the writer's room. But the moment there's a break, the next hour, all we're talking about is how horrendous and depressing it is. And then we're back to work trying to be funny. Vampire Diaries writer, the election brought about absolute sorrow, horror, depression. I knew this was catastrophic. It felt like the whole country was slapped across the face by a two by four. Jeez, people. So I just think everyone is over the top narcissistic. And I think this is the root of the cupcakes at Evergreen College. And really anyone who complains about racism at Evergreen College has completely lost perspective. Take a kid at Evergreen who complains that... I'm trying to think of, a, of an absurd... Well, all right. So we don't have to make something up. Seattle, a couple years ago, the city... city, city, the city excuse me, the city of Seattle uh, a couple years ago banned city employees from using the word brown bag as in like a brown bag lunch. And they said that was racist, the term brown bag lunch. I don't, I don't, I have no idea why. And instead they should, people, city employees should use the term lunch and learn, which I don't even, I couldn't even use that in a sentence. I don't even know what that means. Or a sack lunch, which I guess makes more sense, but still it's stupid. Okay, so if I say, if I'm on Evergreen State College and they have that same rule, and I say, oh, I'm so glad I brought a brown bag lunch here. I'm just, it's delicious or whatever. And some social justice warrior says that that's racist and they can't go to class and they can't focus now because they're so oppressed because I said brown bag lunch. I will personally, for the sake, for their sake and for the sake of humanity, I will pay for a ticket for them to go to India where there are 160 million people in the untouchable class who literally can't be touched. You're, you're, you're complaining because you're microaggressed upon. These people can't be looked at. They can't drink at the same wells that other people drink from. So many of them, they, they can only do things at night because they literally can't be looked at children growing up in actual garbage dumps, not, Wow, this place looks like a dump. No, this is the dump. And here are the kids growing up in the dump. Just Google it. Go on YouTube and look up life of an, as an untouchable. The first video that pops up, there's a ton of them, but the first video that pops up is the video of a woman who cleans up human feces from the street all day, every day. That's her life. And there's no other option for her or for her children forever. There's no chance. Like That's the caste system. There's no way that her kids will ever do anything other than then clean up human feces from the street all day, every day for the rest of their lives. Okay? So go over there, you pathetic little kids. Go over there for a day and then come back and tell me how difficult your life is. And, oh, bet, Actually, better yet, go there and tell her. 
Go tell that untouchable person. Go tell the person who's cleaning up human feces how difficult your life is. Go, 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 go. I dare you. Go and, uh, and cry to them about how some meanie back home was using his hands when he talked and how meanie back home said brown bag lunch. And tell, go tell them about all the racism you, you experience in Olympia, Washington every day. There's no way you couldn't do it. It's impossible. No one could do that. No one's even that narcissistic. I think people are narcissistic enough to not think about actual racism and not put themselves in, like not have perspective of the world and to think, oh, I'm the only person depressed ever. But I don't think people are, anyone's narcissistic enough to look someone in the eye who's facing actual oppression and then complain to them. I don't think that can actually happen. Uh, like example, a silly example, but like if, if you, someone can have a paper cut and they'll be like, oh, I can't go to work. I have a paper cut. But then you go and you look at someone who is paralyzed, right? And go c- complain to them about your paper cut, right? I don't think anyone can actually do that. They can be willfully ignorant of the person who's paralyzed. But once they're face to face with that person, there's no way they can still complain about their paper cut. There's, and, and the, the fact that these kids at this college are, the most privileged people to ever walk the face of the planet ever. And that lack of perspective, that lack of appreciation of social justice warriors, that's what bothers me the most. And you take this, this narcissism and you compare it to what it really takes to be successful in life. This is, this is again, what's so concerning about this is you can't be successful and narcissistic, at least not for long. At the very least, you can't be happy and be narcissistic. And you compare narcissism with, I'd I'd like to compare him to Ben Franklin's 13 virtues. Just Google that. We don't have time to go over them all. But Ben Franklin wrote down 13 virtues that he wanted to live every day. Temperance, silence, frugality, hard work, sincerity, cleanliness, tranquility, humility. Imitate Jesus. That's what he said. And, And really, it's just service to others which is the opposite of narcissism. So just look where our society is going. It's all narcissism, all me, 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 all I'm a victim every day, all the time. And, and instead I beg of you, please raise your kids to be people who serve others because it's the only antidote to the narcissism of our culture today. It's the only antidote is to serve other people. Otherwise your kids will only look inward and complain outward. And I can't take it anymore. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Uh, I want to come back with some parenting advice from, uh, not from me. I don't know what I'm doing. I only got an eight-month old. But um, from someone else that's maybe not, you wouldn't suspect. We'll do that next. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. Slider Crusaders. This fits twofold. First, I want to share a story here about narcissism, just because we mentioned it in the last segment. And also, this is Father's Day weekend. Uh, so we got a little fathering advice. Not from me, because like I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I got an eight month old. Just figuring it out here. But um, on the narcissism point, I'll start here. So I read a, uh, an article about Jerry Seinfeld in a British fashion blog. 
of all places. Um, but I didn't know that he says he quit Seinfeld, or at least one reason why he quit Seinfeld was to focus on his family. I didn't realize that. So uh, I want to read a few insights from Jerry Seinfeld here. There's a lot of good stuff, but I want to start on the narcissism point. The question is, what kind of father would your children say you are? Uh, and Seinfeld responded, I never lose it around them. The one time I really, really got upset was when my daughter was watching the Kardashians on her phone in her bed. And I could not take that scene for someone who for their whole life, television was the Olympics of being a comedian. It was only for the very best. You had to have everything. You had to go through all the different hierarchies of your career to get to television. I'm offended by reality television on so many levels. And that show, of course, is the premier example of reality television. These people are not doing anything interesting. I lost my temper with that one. <laughs> Rightfully so. These kids are all of our kids are bathing in narcissism. They just soak in it all day long in our culture. It's everywhere. Social media is entirely built on entirely built on it. That's like that's that's why it works. That's the, that's the essence of it. It it, it feeds on narcissism. It, the, the narcissism is the fuel of social media. And it's everywhere. It just it's it's exponential. <coughs> and part of the narcissistic culture is oh, everything's a disaster. Everything's terrible. Everything's the worst. You you just can't believe what I have to deal with all of it. Jeez. <coughs> I just I can't I can't wait to raise Jack, my son, to have a sober uh an accurate understand excuse me, understanding of what's important. Right? And I just you got to serve others. That's it. Ronald McDonald house is one of my favorite. There's a bunch of charities I love, but I love Ronald McDonald house. Um, and I look forward to going down there with my son. So Ronald McDonald house, is a charity they're next to children's hospitals and it's a place for parents to stay while their kids are in the hospital. And I love breakfast. I love breakfast. My favorite thing. I love it. So every once in a while, and, and I will do it more frequently when Jack gets a little older, um, we're going to go down and serve breakfast and we do that because if there's no volunteers then they just, it's a cold breakfast you know, they got cereal and stuff. But if you get a couple volunteers there and it doesn't take many, if you get a couple volunteers though. Now you can have a hot breakfast. Now you got eggs and pancakes and French toast and bacon. Oh, it's good stuff. And to be able to give that to people. I mean, listen, you're, you'll snap out of your narcissism real fast when you help feed parents whose kids are dying in the hospital or getting cancer treatments or whatever. Jeez, like it's it's so important that kids understand that. All right, let's do a little uh, little parenting advice from a one Jerry Seinfeld. Things that I that I gleaned from from this interview here. So, uh, four pieces. First piece of advice: ask different questions to your kids. He says, "I'm very good at drawing them out." You know. I think some fathers struggle with my kid doesn't want to talk to me or I can't get them to engage with me in conversations, especially as they get in their teen years. I've always able, I'm always able to get that conversation going. If you start asking them what's going on, what did you do today? Nothing. Well, then they're not going to give you anything from that. You need to get in there and I'm good at that. You know, Hey, did you laugh today? What did you laugh at today? 
I'll ask them a better question than what happened at school today. I like that because that's nothing's more annoying than when you, Oh, what'd you do to nothing? What'd you learn? Nothing. That's first of all, that annoys me and kids should have a better answer than that always. But their answers also kind of reflect the quality of the question, right? The quality of the answers that could reflect the quality of the question. What'd you do today? Right? So it's come, maybe come up with something a little more significant. Did you laugh today? Did you help someone today? Did you see something interesting today or whatever, you know? So ask different questions to your kids. Spice it up a bit. I like that advice. I'm going to do that. Second piece of advice. Don't wait for quality time. Enjoy all the time. Seinfeld said, I'm a, I'm a believer in the ordinary and the mundane. These guys that talk about quality time, I always find that a little sad when they say, oh, we have quality time. I don't want quality time. I want the garbage time. That's what I like. You just see them in their room reading a comic book and you get to kind of watch that for a minute or having a bowl of Cheerios at 11 o'clock at night when they're not even supposed to be up. The garbage. That's what I love. And that's so true. I think so many of my memories, at least my dad, my dad passed away three, four years ago. Um, so many of my memories are of the garbage time. Much more so than the, the, what, what others would call the quality time. Advice number three. Over-appreciate everything. So the question was about Jerry Seinfeld's dad. He was about 34 or so when, when his dad passed away. So the question was about memories of him. Uh, so Jerry said he was a great appreciator of life, which I am as well. I absorbed that from him. And that's very annoying to my kids. Yes, dad, I know this is the best bagel. I know, dad, you love breakfast more than anything. I know we get it. You know, I'm always over-appreciating, but I don't think you can really ever over-appreciate. I'm a big proponent of reveling in the mundane and the ordinary. This is my favorite area to revel in. So it's just appreciating everything. Just having your kids, just, just telling your kids, oh, I love it. This is great. This is awesome. Isn't it? Just loving the little things all the time. <laughs> it's very annoying to them, but they'll learn to love it. And finally, the fourth piece of advice is uh, give your kids ways to show their love to you. The question is, what's the most surprising thing you've learned about fatherhood? And Seinfeld said, how completely worldview changing some of these small moments can be. Like my son is learning to play the Superman theme song on the piano as a present for my birthday. Catching him doing that, that completely changes your life. He knows I love Superman, so he decided he's going to do that as a present. I think sometimes you got to give kids those chances. You got to give them those opportunities because that's how they learn to show love to other people when they get older too, right? Which, to go back to narcissism land that we're living in, uh, if you don't teach them how to show love to other people, then they won't. But they're sure as heck going to find a way to show love to themselves. So there's, there's Seinfeld advice from this interview I saw. Ask different questions to your kids. Enjoy all the time, the junk time. Over-appreciate everything. And give your kids ways to show, have them show love for you. Pretty good stuff from Jerry Seinfeld. one 933 Mike Slater Show. Happy Father's Day tomorrow. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network.
part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Thought about sharing this story and then I thought against it, but now that we got a couple more minutes, I nah, what the heck, might as well share this. So I mentioned in the last segment that I would like to raise my son to have a more uh, appropriate analysis, the ability to understand what's really important and what's not. Uh, so I'll give you an example of where I failed on this. And just have proper perspective. Um, so we bought a house two years ago. It's a new house. And, you know, it was built by, it's like in a development, right? So you got to, you pick your floor plans, like three floor plans, and then you get to customize different things here and there. And one of the things we got to customize is our paint color. Uh, now we thought, my wife and I, we thought that we chose, uh, oh, by the way, this is a super embarrassing story. So just acknowledge, I'm acknowledging that I, I'm with you. Uh, we chose agreeable gray for our paint color. Uh, but it turns out that we actually chose, we mistakenly chose accessible beige. Mm. A disaster. Total, it's too late. It was too late before when we found it out. I mean, it would have been another like 10 grand to get it fixed to go back to the agreeable gray that we wanted the whole time. So instead, we're stuck with accessible beige in our brand new home. And we were just distraught. What are we going to do? So I go to the gym with my friend and uh, I'm visibly rattled. I didn't bring it up. He, he, could just, he could tell something was up. And uh, he goes, Slater, what's wrong? And I just I explained to him, you know, we wanted agreeable gray. We got accessible beige. What are we going to do? And I'll never forget it. And I can't simulate it properly and how perfectly this happened. But as I was sharing the story, he stared right through me. And I'm done. And he, he just he hits my arm, just like slaps my arm and goes, you're fine. Let's go. And just, <laughs> we just went back to working out. It, that, that, it was a, that's exactly what a true friend does. That's what a true friend does. Snaps you out of it. You're fine. Let's go. As opposed to wallowing with you in your misery. Oh, you're right. Your life is so tough. No, Slater, shut up. Come on. Not a big deal. Let's go. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay, right. Whew. Sorry. Kind of got lost there for a minute. So that's my embarrassing story for the day. But I want Jack to be able to have that. And I wanted more friends like this guy to, to snap me out of things too. Uh, actually, this ties in pretty good. So uh, speaking of walls, University of Michigan. There's a headline, University of Michigan students say minorities are oppressed by wood paneling. Oh, this has got to be good. So my first thought was that this wood paneling depicts something. So so in my college, they had a lot of wood carvings, right? They'll have wood paneling and at the top, they'll have some carvings out of it, right? So I'm sure there was a scene in one of these carvings of a slave picking cotton or something like that. So so that scene is oppressive, the wood paneling of it. Um, and also at my school, like last year, some janitor smashed a stained glass window because I think it had slaves picking cotton, right? 
and he was celebrated as some great hero for smashing this uh, stained glass window. So, uh, so that, that was my first thought. So, so I read on. I'm like, okay, well, what is this wood paneling portraying that is so oppressive? Nothing. Not nothing at all. It's 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 just smooth wood paneling the whole time. So the 100 year old Michigan Union building. It's like the student union. Uh, this is the former president of Building a Better Michigan, a organization that voices student concerns about university development, stated that at a student government meeting, uh, quote, minority students felt marginalized by quiet, imposing masculine paneling. Quiet, they, they felt marginalized. Minorities, this is unbelievable. I'd love to talk to one of these people. Minority students felt marginalized by quiet, imposing, masculine paneling. Again, uh, we could go to India where people have no houses. Are we, like that's, that I understand. If you, if you don't have anywhere to live, uh, that's marginalizing. Uh, these, these university students feel that the, the wood paneling is marginalizing to them. It's too masculine. I mean, we've reached full insane mode when you're triggered by wood, right? Wood paneling. Can you find anything else more banal to be triggered by? Are you triggered by water? Are you are you triggered by a chair? Are tables triggering because slave owners owned tables? I don't like shoes or shoes trouble triggering to you. Like, like what could, what else could you, what just normal everyday thing is oppressing you now? Cause if we're going to, if we're bridging the gap now, now we're at wood paneling. What, what else could possibly be couches? Oh, couches are so oppressive. Like this, I mean, where, where are you going to stop now? If you're, if you're already here for wood paneling, it'll never stop. Amazing. All right. I want to come back. Uh, the other day, I got an email. I got a bunch of emails along these lines, but I want to share one particular email uh, from someone whose nephew is graduating high school and going off into college. And this person has a couple concerns that I want to share. Uh, and they're asking, they're asking for advice on books that they could give this nephew uh, as they head off into college. So I thought about it, and I have two books that I would like to suggest that I think are excellent graduation gifts, whether for a high schooler going into college or a college student going into the real world. Excellent, excellent gifts and really good Father's Day books too. So if you uh, don't have a Father's Day present yet and you can run to Barnes & Noble real quick, uh, either of these two books can double as a graduation present or a Father's Day present. And I want to share both of them now. Um, one of them just came out. One of them is pretty old. But short and life changing. We'll share those coming up next. 1 888 Slater Radio on Twitter and search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. 
for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Happy Father's Day weekend as well. So I got an email the other day. Got a couple of emails along these lines, but I just want to read this one email. Um, hopefully it might be relevant to you as well. This person said, as we know, Slater's graduation season. At least it is in San Diego. I know it's different everywhere, but. Uh, we have young men graduating, heading out to our colleges, of which, in my opinion, have a questionable atmosphere and influence in our young men. And I have a nephew who's graduating and heading off to school in Washington, D.C. I wanted to see if you could recommend a father away from home, boys becoming men, good moral foundation style book that I can present to him as a gift. Now, he does have progressive tendencies already. Raised in a Christian environment. So anything having a Christian conservative flavor that would keep his moral compass pointing in the right direction while away from his home would be a plus. Excellent question. So uh, I have two suggestions. So I'm thinking, so again, this would, this would I think be good for high schoolers going to college, college kids going to the real world, but also good Father's Day presents as well. But let me focus specifically on, on this person. This is a high school senior. Now, when I was a high schooler, I, I did not like to read. And you're about to go to college where you're going to read a ton. Right? So, I mean, summertime. You're not going to read. If you, if you don't like reading, at least I didn't. I'm not going to read there in the summertime before I'm going to college where I know I'm going to read a ton. So, I don't want to suggest any book that's too long or in, in depth. Um, I'm not going to suggest a, a Christian book. Because... I don't know. And then we can argue about this, but I think going into a secular progressive environment, if you're already Christian, I, I don't think the secular part is as big of a problem as the progressive part, but either way, right? Um, I, I just want to give, I want to suggest a book with good conservative values, but not like by Ann Coulter, right? It's not, I don't mean politically conservative, just good, hearty, conservative value book without shoving it down your face. I mean, if I, if I want to do a Christian book, I do Wild at Heart. I'll throw that out there. But that's not the two I'm going to talk about here. Or that's not one of the two I'm going to talk about here. I got two suggestions. The first, it's called Make Your Bed by Admiral McRaven. So McRaven is a Navy SEAL. He's an admiral. He was the commander of Joint Special Operations Command. So he is the guy. He's the head of all, he was the head of all the special ops groups in the military, right? You can't get more baller than Admiral McRaven. And back in 2014, he gave the commencement address at Texas, his alma mater. And it's right up there with one of the best commencement addresses ever. If you just Google Admiral McRaven, Texas, it'll pop up. It's 20 minutes. Uh, it's, it's excellent. Um, it's entitled, If You Want to Change the World. Can we play? Uh, this is the, his first piece of advice that he gave at this commencement address. Here it is, 14, uh, 1542. So here are the 10 lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, 
and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, <laughs> that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. So keep, keep in mind who that guy is. <laughs> he, the commander of Joint Special Operations Command, so SEALs and all the different branches. They're like he's the man, and his advice is you gotta make your bed. You gotta make your bed every day, and there's why, right? So it's 20 minutes of perfection, and he turned that into a book. It's super short. Can I just read one one section here that I think would be relevant to the college world? He said one of the titles is one of the chapters is if if you want to change the world. Get over being a sugar cookie. And he writes about Bud's training. This is the uh, Hell Week stuff. And you're fully clothed. You got combat boots on the whole thing. Soaking wet because you've been running in and out of the, the ocean all day. And one of these days, the instructor comes up to him and says, you know what to do, Mac. So he fell on the ground and rolled around in the sand making himself completely covered in sand. And when you think you're, you're completely covered in sand from rolling in it, you get on your knees and you throw the sand up in the air with your arms all over your body. You got to get the sand everywhere. And then when you're done, when it's all covered on the outside of your body, you pull open the, your jacket and you pour sand down your clothes, every crevice of your entire body covered with sand. And they call this making yourself a sugar cookie. And McCraven said there's nothing more uncomfortable in the SEAL training process than spending the day as a sugar cookie. No, there's things more painful and exhausting, but spending the entire day with sand down your neck and between your legs and all over your body, it's just awful. If you go to the ocean and you're getting out of the ocean, you got to walk to your beach towel, right? You know, you get, you get wet feet, sandy and wet feet. Like, you know how annoying that is? Imagine that over your whole body and you're fully clothed and all that stuff. You're going to spend all day doing that, running and doing everything else you do. Horrible. But he said the worst part, emotionally, and I'll quote, he says, there's no rhyme or reason. You became a sugar cookie at the whim of the instructor. And to many of the SEAL trainees, this was hard to accept. Those that strived to be the very best expected that they would be rewarded for their stellar performance. And sometimes they were. But then again, sometimes they were not. Sometimes the only things they got for their effort was wet and sandy. And the instructor said, Mac, do you have any idea why you're a sugar cookie this morning? 
No, Instructor Martin. Because, Mr. Mack, life isn't fair. And the sooner you learn that, the better off you'll be. Don't our college snowflakes need to learn that lesson? But the story doesn't end there. A year later, after he made it through Bud, he and the instructor became close friends. They were on a first-name basis. His name was Moki. And he was an amazing athlete. He was a top-notch triathlete. And one day he was riding in this area in San Diego. It's called The Strand. It's right where the Navy SEALs train. And it's in between uh, Coronado and Imperial Beach. It's two towns. And there's just a straight, flat road. And it is a cyclist's paradise. Because you have San Diego Bay on one side, and you have the ocean on the other, and it's flat, and it is just an awesome place to let it rip and do a time trial. And just put your head down and pedal as fast as you can. And it's beautiful. And early one morning, Moki was riding, head down, pedaling as fast as he could. And he didn't see that someone else was doing the exact same thing coming in the opposite direction right at him. And they crashed. The other rider was okay. Moki was paralyzed. Now there was hope at first that this would be temporary. But the days, the months, and the years passed. And Moki has never regained the use of his legs and has limited use of his arms. This was 35 years ago. He's in a wheelchair today. And McCraven said he's never once heard Moki complain about his misfortune, not one time. Never once has he asked, why me? Never once an ounce of pity. He went on to become a painter, a father, and he oversees what they call the Super Frog Triathlon every year in Coronado, right near where he got hurt. McCraven said, it's easy to blame your lot in life on some outside force to stop trying because you believe fate is against you. It's easy to think that the way you were raised, how your parents treated you or what school you went to is what determines your future. Nothing could be further from the truth. Sometimes no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, you still end up being a sugar cookie. Don't complain. Don't blame it on your misfortune. Stand tall. Look to the future. And drive on. The book's called Make Your Bed. Short, easy, simple read. Stories like that. Make Your Bed by Admiral McRaven. Just came out like a month ago. So it'll be at the bookstore today. Uh... I got one more book suggestion. I just finished this one, actually. It's an older book. I just finished it. I think it's my favorite book I've ever read. Total Game Changer. I'll share this one with you next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, the other book that I recommend for 
graduating high schoolers, college kids, and Father's Day is called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Uh, Not The Art of War by Sun Tzu, although that's good. Uh, This is The War of Art. Stephen Pressfield, he wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance. He wrote Gates on Fire, or Gates of Fire, which is uh, the favorite book of every warrior. It's a good Father's Day gift, too, Gates of Fire. It's awesome. I think it's required reading in the military academies, actually, Gates of Fire. It's about the Battle of Thermopylae. Anyway, he's uh, Stephen Pressfield right up there, one of the greatest writers of our era. But this is his first nonfiction book, The War of Art. It is fantastic. I just finished it yesterday, and I'm starting it over again. It's that short. Just I'm just going right back around. It's perfection. Every sentence. And it's, it's not just for writers or artists. It's about how to push through the thing that prevents us from being our true creative selves and, and being our true self. And that could be what's stopping you from sticking to a diet or a workout regimen or what's keeping you from launching a business or from stopping a bad habit or from writing that book you've always wanted to write or that presentation you need to do or whatever. Whatever keeps us from doing what we know we need to do, he calls that force the resistance. And the resistance is a glorious thing and it is an insidious evil thing. Please buy this book. It, it's, uh, it sounds self-helpy, but it's not. It's, it's way more than just your basic self-help book. It is beautifully poetic. And it identifies, helps you identify the resistance and then how to overcome it. Can I just share one story here from the book? Uh, and this barely scratches the surface. So please don't even judge the book by this story. There's so much more to it than this. I almost feel like I'm doing a disservice by sharing anything from it. But uh, So you got Stephen Pressfield, 17 years into trying to become a professional writer. He has his first movie, King Kong Lives. Now, let me just stop here because 17 years in trying to become a professional writer. I feel like this is a good book for kids because it slaps them across the face and and says, success isn't overnight. It's just not. That's a lie. That is an absolute total lie. But that's part of our instant gratification culture we have today. The American Idol culture is that you're just going to be successful within six months. It doesn't happen that way. So 17 years into trying to become a professional writer, he got his first movie, King Kong Lives. He wrote it with the man who went on to write Alien and Total Recall. Now, these two guys were totally sure it'd be a hit, a total blockbuster. And they invited all of their friends to come see it opening night. And they even rented the space next door of the movie theater to do a, a, a post-triumph blowout. Get there early, he warned his friends, because the place is going to be mobbed. Nobody showed up. A, a couple of their friends did, but no, no, no one else showed up. And after the movie was over, he says all of his friends fled the scene like cockroaches in the night. Can I read from the book here? He says next day, the next day came the review in Variety. Ronald Shusett and Stephen Pressfield. We hope these are not their real names for their parents' sake. <laughs> That's my favorite review I've ever seen in my life. 
We hope this isn't. We hope these are not their real names for their parents' sake. <laughs> That's great. So he's like, all right, well, maybe this just didn't play well in a in a city theater. So he drove an hour outside of town into a rural movie theater. He bought a ticket. He was the only one there. He bought a ticket, and he asked the the, the teenager scooping his popcorn. He said, "Hey, man, how's King Kong lives?" And the kid turns around and gives a thumbs down. Miss it, man. It sucks. <laughs> he says, I was crushed. Here I was, 42 years old, divorced, childless, having given up all normal human pursuits to chase the dream of being a writer. And now I finally got my name on a big time Hollywood production starring Linda Hamilton. And what happens? I'm a loser. A phony. My life is worthless and so am I. My friend Tony Kuppelman snapped me out of it by asking if I was going to quit. Well, heck no. I said, great, then be happy. You're where you wanted to be, aren't you? So you're taking a few blows. That's the price for being in the arena and not on the sidelines. Stop complaining and be grateful. That was when I realized I had become a pro. I had not yet had a success, but I had had a real failure. Amazing. Love that story. So whatever it is in your life that you know you need to do, get this book. It'll help you do it. Uh, do I have time to share this? I'll share it real quick. This comes at a perfect time for me. So I wrote this book a couple months ago. It's a, a short book. It's the idea is for to read it in 30 minutes. And I wrote it and I let it sit for months. I promise you everything I'm going to share with you right now is true. I promise you. I'm not exaggerating a bit. <coughs> I let it sit for a couple months and I prayed. I said, God, you know, listen, I don't know. I don't know if anything should come of this or not. The next day, I'm not kidding. Out of nowhere, a listener wrote me an email, said that she's a book editor. And was just wondering if there's anything I needed help with ever. So we talked a little bit. Still didn't do anything with it. I was too scared. Scared that it would be worthless. It would be bad. It was stupid. Bad idea. Who do you think you are? That kind of stuff. So I never sent it to her. A month goes by. And my wife says, so what's the deal with the book you wrote? I was walking out the door to go to work. And I said, gosh, you know, it's funny you say that. Some listener a month ago actually emailed me and said that she would edit it. I promise you this is how it went down. And I, she said, well, have you sent it? My wife said, have you sent it? I said, no, I haven't sent it yet. And my wife goes, you need to send it to her. Send it to her today. Right when you get to work, send it to her. I said, okay, I will. I get in the car. My, my hand was on the doorknob as we were having this conversation. So I walk outside. I get in the car. I sit down. I check my phone, my email before I, I back out. Got an email from Carol. Hey, Mike, just circling back to see if you need my help with, with any anything, you know, this book that we were talking about. I don't know. It, she sent that email at the exact, mo- it, like on the email, it says sent one minute ago. So, so she was having, she sent me the email the exact same time I was having the conversation with my wife. That's incredible. So it should be done in a few weeks as we're going through the process. The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield. Go get it. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. I want to do a quick segment here. We'll wrap up this point, and then I want to get to a clip I saw last week. Wrap the whole show uh, together here. Um, So about these two books, Make Your Bed, Admiral McRaven, and The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. So real quick about this this e-book, this short little book that I wrote. Um, So I finally sent it off to her. I just shared the story. I don't have to go through it again. But I sent sent it off. And a week later, she sent it back to me with edits. And she wrote me this this long email. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry, I'm a little sick today. I'm almost there. Half an hour later. Keep it going. Um, she wrote me this long email. And she outlined everything that was wrong with the book. Now, to me, it was like she was stabbing me in the neck repeatedly. Every single word I read was you're awful, you're terrible, you're the worst, who do you think you are, this is trash, throw it away. <laughs> like, just t- brutal. That's how it felt. In reality, her advice was kind, thoughtful, unbelievably helpful in every single way, spot on, perfect advice, makes the book a 100 times better. I'm incredibly grateful for it. But it was unbelievable how I interpreted this feedback. So, when I got that, that's when I started reading The War of Art. And Pressfield talks about this resistance. And that's what that was, right? This, this horrible self-talk. That's resistance. This inner voice telling me I'm no good. That's resistance. This fear that I have of, of putting it out there. What I wrote, putting it out there. The fear. Far from being a bad thing. And this, this is why I think it's so good for for college kids or for kids just entering the real world and for anyone this we live in a culture where we try to avoid pain and we try to avoid fear and if oh i'm afraid of something that means i better not do it and and you run away from it no no no. the fear is a good thing because i'll just speak personally it told me that this is what i really care about like i actually care about what i wrote that's why i'm scared to put it out there if i didn't care then i wouldn't be scared so the fact that I do care, or excuse me, the fact that I am scared, the fact that I am afraid of it, that means I have to do it. That means it is important. So I'll end with this paragraph from Pressfield. Actually, I lied. I'll, two more paragraphs. He says, resistance, the resistance you feel is directly proportional to love. If you're feeling massive resistance, the good news is it means there's a tre- tremendous love there too. If you didn't love the project that is terrifying you, you wouldn't feel anything. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The more resistance you experience, the more important your unmanifested art project enterprise is to you and the more gratification you will feel when you finally do it. He goes on, he says, have you ever watched Inside the Actor's Studio? The host, James Lipton, invariably asks his guests, what factors make you decide to take a particular role? And the actor always answers because I'm afraid of it. The professional tackles the project that will make him stretch. He takes on the assignment that will bear him into uncharted waters, compel him to explore unconscious parts of himself. Is he scared? Well, heck yes, he's petrified. Conversely, the professional turns down roles that he's done before. He's not afraid of them anymore. So why waste his time? If you, so if you're paralyzed with fear, it's a good sign. It shows you what you have to do.
So the original question was books for high school or graduating off to college. So why these two? There's a ton of wisdom. And not only wisdom, but wisdom that is contrary to every prevailing ideology on college campuses today. Right? Like it's, it's the exact opposite. So we, I shared, if you're just tuning in, I shared the story from Admiral McRaven and Bud Seal training. You're a sugar cookie. Do you know why you're a sugar cookie today, Mac? Do you know why I had you cut, you cover yourself, you're soaking wet and dressed, you're covered in sand now for the rest of the day? Do you know why you're a sugar cookie? Because life's not fair. And the sooner you realize that, the better off you're going to be. Just not fair. Life's not fair. Bad things happen. Suck it up. That is totally contrary to everything that goes on in our college campuses today. What everyone is taught, which is you're a victim, everything's against you, uh, institutional oppression, you can't make it, blah, 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 blah. It's total lies. Total, total lies. These two books are full of truth. And the main theme throughout both of them is suffering. James 1 Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let the perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I love that line, not lacking anything. But consider it pure joy when you face trials. How about that for against prevailing wisdom? So the story of Admiral McRaven being a sugar cookie Life's not fair. The War of Art, Pressfield, he was a Marine. And he says the Marine Corps teaches you an incredible skill set. How to be miserable. He says the artist has to love to be miserable. And artists, again, it's about, the book is about, you know, writing and stuff, but it's not, it's more than that. Because he also throws in there any creative enterprise pursuit, launching a business, anything of the heart, anything difficult. But that person loves to be miserable like the Marine. You have. So so in our culture today, we try to avoid discomfort, but that's so wrong. You have to revel in it. He says, Marines love to be miserable. Marines derive a perverse satisfaction from having colder chow, crappier equipment. And higher casualty rates than any outfit of dog faces, swab jockeys, or flyboys, all of whom they despise. Why? Because these candy bleeps don't know how to be miserable. The artist committing himself to, be, to his calling has volunteered for hell, whether he knows it or not. He will be dining for the duration on a diet of isolation, rejection, self-doubt, despair, ridicule, contempt, and humiliation. The artist must be like that Marine. He has to know how to be miserable. He has to love being miserable. He has to take pride in being more miserable than any soldier or swabby or jet jockey. Why? Because this is war, baby, and war is hell. I just imagine giving that to a high school senior who's going into college where the culture is everything's easy. Everything should be handled to, handed to you. You're entitled to everything. I'm just going to sit back, play video games, avoid discomfort, avoid just, just seek pleasure. That's, that's what college, that's what our culture is all about, right? Seeking pleasure. And if you can raise a kid and, and maybe give this book to someone, to a kid and have them change their mindset and they can go into college. I'm not saying you have to be a miserable person, but to buckle down and get it done and to revel in the difficulty 
of doing important things. Total game changer. Make your bed. War of art. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, let's go to Joe, who's in Tampa Bay. What's going on, Joe? Uh, On a couple things. One, I've read the Make Your Bed book. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't remember if I heard about it on Doc or Glenn, but bought it immediately and read it. It It's super great read. I read it in about... I don't know, yeah, it's 45 quick. minutes. Yeah, exactly. And had yeah, both my teenage sons read it, one who's already at a freshman in college and the other one who's going to be a freshman in college this year. Nice. And they both took a lot away from it, I think. Um, I'm going to pick up that other book, The War of Art, and I wanted to call back to something else you were talking about maybe 45 minutes or an hour ago mm-hmm. about that pretend university and the state of who gives a crap. Uh, <laughs> and... and uh, say, you know, every time that they talk about uh, how much the president of organization X makes, and they say, well, but you know what, we have to pay him this much, because otherwise, how can we attract the very best, you know, talent? What, what, who, and you could get out of the 300 million people in the United States, and 170 million of those are adults. There are probably 179,998,997 are better than that guy to be the president of that university. And, and I'm sure any of them would take would accept less than three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what, I'll do it for one fifty. Is <laughs> I mean, and, that's pathetic. Yeah, and and people. Well, I was going to say people pay for it, but the taxpayers are forced to pay for that too. That's what, what, what state was that in? Uh, Washington, Olympia, Washington. Oh yeah, yeah. It, that, I, that I, is I, just I don't else. Yeah, and I can't see how it gets worse than that one. That one takes the cake so far. I'm sure they'll find a way to top it, but uh, that's the worst yet. Um, Joe, you. real quick, what, what, what do you think your uh, kids took away from the Make Your Bed book, or what do you hope they took well, away? Well, you know something? I, I jog in the morning, and I think about that book a lot, and I wonder if, you know, there's a difference between thinking and hoping when it comes to what other people are getting from something, right? That's right. And... And I, and I think about what they may or may have gotten from it. And uh, probably before they leave and about uh, when they go back to or go out to school in, in one case and back to school in the other case in about two months, I'm probably going to have them read it again. And then whether this is the right idea or wrong idea, I'm probably going to, for lack of a better word, get them to do sort of a book report on it. Sure. You know, give me their thoughts, whether it's just a verbal type of a thing or not. Um, uh, to find out what, you know, what we can get out of it. Because when I am, when I, you know, run in the morning, then I come to work and I have a, you know, good, medium or, or bad day, 
when I'm just sitting there with my head in my hands and I think, well, at least I ran five miles this morning. You know, I mean, the rest of the day may or may not go that well, but I'm hoping that that what they got out of it was um, the same the, the, sort of, the, you know, it, it's it's those whatever it is, eight or ten small little chapters. And that, and that bed one that it's named after the title really is the one to me that um, and I'll t- oh I'll tell you another book though um, I think it's called Eat That Frog I picked it up in Barnes and Noble a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago and it talks about doing your hardest task of the day first yeah right yeah, I've heard that and um, and because everybody's got these these projects at work or in school, and you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. So you put it off, and the longer you put it off, the worse it gets. And then when you eventually do it, it usually turns out it wasn't as bad as you were building it up to be. And that is... Yeah, let me. I want. I want to play one more clip here, Joe. I appreciate the call, brother. Thanks for listening. I'm really glad you had your kids read that. I'm looking forward to hear what they say about it. If you get them, if you have them read it again. Um, Yeah, and I love the takeaway from the making your bed is that you can't accomplish the big things unless you can also accomplish the little things. So uh, get some momentum with little things too. The, The point is just get it done. That's that's the big thing. Um, I want to wrap up with this. Last week I watched. Thanks for the call, Joe. Last week I watched. uh, Turned over to sixty minutes, and they were doing a story on Bruno Mars. So I, I like Bruno Mars. Whatever. So I'm like, oh, I'll learn about Bruno Mars. So he grew up in Honolulu with his dad and his brother. They slept on couch to couch. Slept in his car. Um, the in the in the piece they went to one place he used to live. It's a tiny house in the middle of the jungle. Uh, today the roof is torn off and it's overrun with plants. Um, and there's you know it didn't look like that when he lived there, but it still was not nice. There was no electricity. Uh, and he never used it as an excuse. Never once, because if he did, we wouldn't know him and he wouldn't be super popular. And that's why these social justice warriors are, are just setting themselves up for a miserable, miserable, meaningless, insignificant life. And it's sad and it's a waste, especially coming from people who have no excuse. Bruno Mars had every excuse, but he still didn't let that stop. I want to play a clip here. It's 1530. But the bed would be right there in the middle. Yeah. And you'd all sleep in one bed. We'd all sleep in one bed. Happy memories. The best. That's it's kind of amazing. Yeah. And that what you remember about it is not the struggle or the things you didn't have. It's no. all the things you you had. Yeah. We had it all. You know? We had each other. And it never felt like it was the end of the world. Sorry, right, we don't got we don't got electric today. It's all right. It's temporary. So we're gonna figure this out. You know, maybe that's why I have this mentality when it comes to the music. Because I know I'm gonna figure I'm gonna figure it out. Just give me some time. <laughs> Love that. Well one more clip here. Um this uh, this ties back into the other two books too. The idea that you never stop working and, and things won't be given to you. You have to earn them. And you just, it, that never stops. And it shouldn't ever stop. This is how the 60 minute story ends, 1531. Read, let me, there we it's go. It's easy to see that Bruno Mars loves the only job he's ever wanted. And that he's still driven to get it right. I was built for this, Laura. It's 
dedicating yourself to your craft, spending thousands of hours in the studio learning how to write a song, learning how to play different chords, training yourself to sing, you know, to get better and better. Are you there? No, not even close. <laughs> I love that. In our instant gratification culture, there's Bruno being like, am I there yet? Not even close. See you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.